big jobs with the History Commission so far has been working with the staff at the Museum Service and Emshed yeah. and looking at how the Colston statue is going to be displayed. And as you can imagine, that's just hugely complex in terms of tone, language, getting it right. I'm Neil Max, and this is Bristol Unpacked, speaking to fascinating Bristolians on topics where others may fear to tread. Brought to you by the city's community-owned media, The Bristol Cable. This last week has seen the revelatory Meghan Markle interview with Oprah Winfrey. This week, it's all about race and the media. There is no better man for this than Dr. Sean Sobers, Professor of Video Photography and Anthropology at the University of the West of England. He is a community media pioneer, being involved with the first ever black-led TV companies in the city. He subsequently went on to work at ITV and then embarked on a career in academia. Sean recently appeared on the BBC Panorama programme, Let's Talk About Race. As a member of the new Bristol History Commission, Sean was talking about Colston and its legacy. So this week we talk about media institutional racism and the History Commission. Hey Sean. Hi Dale, how you doing? I'm good, how are you? Should I refer to you as Dr. Dr. Sean Sabres? No, no, need, are... for, no, no need for such formality. Sean are you sure? Formality. I don't want to downgrade your status or anything. <laughs> Absolutely fine. I don't come with any as or graces. Lovely, that's good stuff to know. Good to talk to you actually. I've been wanting to get you on for a little while because you know, you're know you somebody that's got quite an interesting present but also an interesting past professionally and uh, at the moment you're a Associate Professor at UWE. Yeah, yes, right. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. that's 21, 21 years, I think it is, 2002. Uh, 21 years, wow. Yeah. Your subject is film, photography and anthropology, correct? Yeah, that's right, that's right, yeah. To the uninitiated, what is anthropology? Anthropology is the study of cultures, the study of behaviours and customs and rituals. And my whole thing was media anthropology. So it's kind of looking at how different cultures kind of use media, use media technologies, but also how media technologies also then translate and represent different cultures and traditions, etc. So, you know, fitted in with my media making background really neatly, really. Is that quite a niche field in academia? Uh, it's not particularly niche. You know, when we look at like the Harry and Meghan, Oprah Winfrey mm-hmm. production, and how yeah. that's played out across different parts of the world and different territories and how different territories talk about it. That's all a part of media anthropology, really, is the analysis of that. Yeah. So so it's not as niche as it sounds, really. I ah, think. I see. Okay. <laughs> and let's talk about the Oprah Winfrey, yeah. Meghan Markle interview. You watched it, it yeah? Yeah, I watched it. I yeah. watched it. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's interesting <laughs> moment. Yeah. 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 And somehow cases are thinking, well, yeah, none of this is really a surprise. But at the same time, I think the surprising thing was just hearing it coming out of their mouths, which was, you know, it's like, okay, yeah, okay, this is actually being said and there's going to be ricochet. And I actually thought Harry mm-hmm. spoke in a way clearer and more direct than Megan did. Do you know what I mean? It felt like yeah. Megan was slightly couching things. But then when Harry said it, you know, it was just like, well, yeah, racism and this, that, and the other. Yeah, I'm glad it happened. There's no doubt in my mind that they're telling the truth. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not surprised in the slightest of there being 
uh, racist tendencies or elements in some parts of the royal family because the royal family, you know, it reflects British society. You know, there's, there's, you know, I'm under no illusion. Were you surprised that people were surprised to suddenly discover that the royal family were were racist, or when yeah, in well, effect the yeah. entire institution is founded upon? Empire and colonialism, yeah. Exactly. The whole British monarchy, as you say, based on British Empire, to maintain that is based on huge amounts of class power, let alone ethnic power and all the rest of it. You know, because the fact is you can have... I I, I grew up in the city of Bath, yeah, and I was the one black child in my whole class, three other black children in my year group, and some of my good friends there, you know, I'm talking like now in the 1970s and 80s, you would be good friends and, you know, going out, playing, this, that and the other. And then I remember one particular incident where I looked in one of their rough books, like the Jotters rough books, I don't know if they still exist now. And he had National Front logo scrawled all over. And he actually tried to get the rough book away from me because right. I didn't know why he yeah. was getting so, what you know, and I was just like, well, I just want to flick through. And I, and I just saw these National Front things. I thought, whoa, okay, where's that? And, you know, I just kind of threw it back at him and I just went along, went yeah. along my business kind of thing. So you even in working class communities, you have black people mm-hmm. alongside white people, looking like they are best of friends, but when something happens, there can be a rupture in that relationship and then a racist thing might come through. So this is in communities where black and white people live together, let alone an institution like the royal family, where the black people in those circles are going to be very remote sort of thing. I want to give a counter view, if I can, just a little bit with regards to, I guess, the framing of the conversation. Some people would say Oprah Winfrey is kind of teeing her up underarm questions a bit. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a really robust interview. She didn't really pin down and ask who was the person that was in the Royals, because I know they distanced themselves, haven't they? And yeah, that, yeah. Uh, who was that person or, or, or kind of trying to unpick it a little bit. So it was obviously a little bit of a, a, a platform to air and get this stuff out, which is obviously the reason why she's also gone to Oprah Winfrey is because, you know, she has that uh, huge profile in, in the mm-hmm. States. And in a way, I think if you're going to take on the royal family, you need to make sure you've got a kind of powerful backing. And mm-hmm. so, so did it feel like it was a bit of a softball interview? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I don't blame Megan for going to Oprah Winfrey because that what she's been facing with is the hostility from the media that have been challenging and twisting her words. So that's completely why she... I guess, felt the need to go to someone like Oprah who actually would let her speak and get her words out. You know, she could have gone to someone that would play devil's advocate. And there were a few times when Oprah tried to do that, but, it would, you know, she's not really a hard-hitting journalist in that sort of sense. No. But, yeah, she could have gone to an Andrew Marr or this, that or the other. But the last thing Megan needed at that point was to get her words twisted away from her. And even with Harry, the week before, he went to... James Corden, and I find that interesting. So a white English male (laughs) did the interview with another white English male, and an African-American woman, Megan, did her interview with another African-American woman. Do you know what I mean? James Corden's wasn't hard-hitting. No one was expecting it to be. But it still did have these little bits of insight. And also, you said earlier about class. Obviously, you know, these are two incredibly wealthy people. Do you have any sympathy to a poor person watching that black or white is probably thinking bloody hell i mean you're moaning about all that you've got millions and billions of pounds and a huge kind of profile 
I don't really have sympathy for that for you, to be honest, because racism and classism can cut through economics. Do you know what I mean? Like, if you're black, you're black. It doesn't matter how much money you've got. It will cut through. Marcus Garvey said a black man won't know themselves till their back's against the wall. So you can ride through life very comfortably, have Mm -hmm. a middle-class existence and feel like you're completely integrated, but then all of a sudden someone then challenges you in a racist kind of context and then you suddenly realise, hang on, they've noticed I'm black kind of thing. So, you know, just because you've got a lot of money does not soften the blow or shield you from attacks of racism. You know, if if someone's rich, that's, you know, good on them. But it's not going to have sympathy with them if they face racist abuse because an injustice is an injustice, no matter who the victim is. For sure. Then in the same week, what was interesting is the fallout from the criticism of the tabloid newspapers for the way that they reported on Meghan Markle. The Society of Media Editors came out and said that the media wasn't racist, wasn't institutionally racist. A number of people, including the Bristol Cable, have pulled out of the uh, journalism awards, media awards they were going to do. So my question to you, having been somebody who has worked in the media... Is the media institutionally racist? Uh, well, the short answer is yes. Um, uh, okay. But, yep. yeah, it, it, it is. Okay, let's <laughs> move on to the next thing then. Yeah, that's, <laughs> it. that's all I needed, Sean. That's all I needed. Yeah. The, the short yeah. answer is yes. But, again, as with all things, it comes with nuance. So, yeah. But, but absolutely it is. Have you, did you call it, that out? Did you, say, did you have any um, conversations with people around this when you were at Fry TV? Did you... I mean, to be honest, I've been quite blessed with not having, you know, in terms of personal, mm. you know, if people talk about, yeah, what has your personal experiences have been of racism and that other, I don't actually have many stories to tell. I actually yeah. think I've been quite blessed with with people I've met, people I work with, but I have absolutely called yeah. out incidents where you, have. you know, w- you know, one one example when I was at HTV and I had a call from one of the producers director i'm not sure what their role was in the newsroom asking for you know my input on something so i thought they just yeah want to talk about an issue or something and they asked if they could film me in the lineup for crime stoppers because they needed a black person in their Whoa. lineup and i was just like are you oh my kidding me God, really? are you joking me and um, yeah i had it out yeah. with them so right. there's been things like that where absolutely things have arisen. Yeah, I I, and, I don't necessarily know. mean I kind of I'm always resistant to ask questions when there's conversations about race to ask people because journalists do this all the time. So they get somebody on to talk about issues of racism, they always say, "Give me some personal examples." Yeah, and yeah, like, yeah, yeah. It yeah. takes a conversation and it makes it personal, not institutional. And I think it kind of removes from what the real kind of issues are yeah, a little yeah, bit. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to go back to your initial question about calling things out, and this follows me actually to UWE as well, that that I'm not, even though I kind of do lots of different projects, some of them large, some of them small and all that kind of stuff, I I always feel lacking in the Mm -hmm. strategic brain to think, okay, right, we need to, if if there's a pay gap between black and white people, for example, employees, yeah, how do we fix that? And I'm like, I'm not quite sure how to fix that. I'm not the expert in that. I need to know how to fix it. Do you know what I mean? So I, I sometimes feel lacking in the strategic conversation yeah. of how to fix some of these problems. Sure. But I think what I've always tried to do, and this is from when I worked in HTV, Black Pyramid, Firstborn, up to now even working in 
at UWE for 20 years is that I've tried to instill and create environments where black young people can thrive in and do their best in. So it's kind of through projects, through, so for example, in media, myself and Rob Mitchell, we set up Channel Zero, which was a an annual summer school and a, an ongoing kind okay. of media club. You're building your own resources rather Absolutely. than just kind of sitting there. Because I suppose in some regard, it, it's disempowering just to constantly it's, having to say, this is wrong, that's wrong. And actually where it's to say, well, actually, creating own spaces, creating it is, Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's, an answer, it's about it? that. Yeah. So unless if we if we go back to that premise of of the media being institutionally racist, so I just want to chuck out some stuff. So Ofcom say that thirteen percent of all staff at the five major media organisations, that's BBC, ITV, Channel Four, and Sky, come from black and ethnic minority backgrounds. Uh, the working population is twelve percent, so that's relatively okay in the context. But at senior level, it's only seven right. percent, which Ofcom say is disappointing in terms yeah, of television. Yeah. On screen, and I think I want to talk about what I call decorative diversity or sort yeah. of optics, actually overrepresented. I think 37% in children's programs, 26% in drama, in production, making programs, decision making, 8%. Yeah. Pat Young, who's managing director of production company Sugar Films, said in terms of race, it would be churlish not to say there's been improvement in some areas, significantly on screen. That doesn't mean there's been improvement in the stories that people are telling. Fundamentally, most of the stories haven't changed. You'll see these occasional tent poles, the BBC doing a big piece with Steve McQueen recently and a series with Michaela Cole. But there hasn't been a systemic change on broadcast television in terms of whose stories we are telling and who is telling them. I've worked in TV for 30 years and I've met very few people who are racist. There's a very liberal anti-racist mindset, but there is a groupthink in our industry people at the top the commissioning class they tend to all go to the same colleges they read the same books they go to the same plays and they all watch the same things in the cinema and it's a real challenge for them to give up control lots of people when they talk about representation diversity think about on screen on air and it's stepped forward in a, in a positive way but by actual people in key decision making capacities it's exceptionally low still I mean, this is where it comes back to the question that you asked me before about is the media institutionally racist? And the reason I said yes in such a short way is because it's still reflective of, you know, the, the, those certain people that get into those certain positions that come from certain schools and colleges and universities. So there's no difference in there. So if the one of the words I don't particularly like using, but that unconscious bias thing i'm not so when i say yes i'm not talking about they are willfully going out and trying to make racist stories but there's huge blind spots that then gets you know translated through racist headlines or framing stories etc etc so they're the things that need to be challenged so absolutely when it comes to on-screen representation in in our television it's hugely improved you know what i mean i remember television 1970s and 80s through to now and yeah absolutely this is you know terrestrial television as well as on demand you know absolutely you get the, like you say decorative but i'm also i absolutely will say positives about things as well as negatives so even radio 4 sometimes i just get in the car turn on radio 4 and they've got a story you know about black history 
staying on this, so you were you popped up onto my TV. Talk about mainstream on BBC One on <laughs> Panorama just over a week ago. By the time this airs, on a documentary called "Let's Talk About Race," which was presented by Naga Manchetti. She was a presenter on these breakfast shows, and she breached well breached BBC rules for criticizing former U.S. President mm. Donald Trump's perceived racism. The BBC were then forced to do a slightly embarrassing climb down. It, I think that was one of several recent slight sort of PR gaffes. And then part of this documentary was sort of framed, I think, in her own experience and she made reference to it and they even showed clips about it. So fair play for the BBC for doing this because they are actually one mm. of the only organisations that are quite sort of capable of reflecting and yeah. will make programmes based upon that. So she presented this talking about race in the context of Black Lives Matter. She came to Bristol in relation to the Colston statue and she came and spoke to you in your role for the History Commission. What was that like? Good experience seeing yourself pop up on Panorama? No, not really. I mean, I've done bits of media, but, you know, I started off behind the camera, they end up in front of it. Uh, you're more comfortable behind, are you? Yeah. I'm more comfortable behind, definitely. Yeah. You know, that was filmed before Christmas, that, that, that wow. section with me. So yeah. I was actually quite nervous when that was going out. Because I just oh, thought, you? Yeah. you know what I mean? My opinions and the way I articulate things will have changed from December to now. As you know, so much things are happening in Bristol so fast. You come across all right, I thought. I thought you come across I, yeah. pretty well. I guess for me, it's, yeah, I just want to try the best, best way of saying this, really. I'm 49 years old now, and I grew up with black skin, and yeah. I've experienced racism, do you know what I mean, from, yeah. from, from all that time. So for watching a programme discussing how people have experienced racism... It's, it's a traumatic experience to keep watching those things. Yeah, you know I mean, none yeah. none of it's new to me, but I yeah. know those. I know it's important that those films get made. But in terms of me sat on a sofa watching it, right, I, I know yeah. I'm not necessarily the target yeah. audience for that because actually I'm already the converted yeah. in yeah, that. Sure. <laughs> Do yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah, so yeah. then it is important for people to watch that that don't understand the complexities of racism. So I'm hugely, you know, hugely proud and, and grateful to be included in that programme and to do my little bit. And that I guess that's the responsibility that comes with, you know, working in a university, doing the research I do, etc. Yeah. that I am asked to, like, such as this conversation we're having now, I get asked to have opinions on certain things and I try to use that platform responsibly. Just jump in there. Dr. Sean Sobers first appeared in The Cable in our first ever crowdfunding video in 2014. He talked about the need for greater media polarity in the city. So, it's now 2021. We are going from strength to strength, but we still need your support. We want to get a wider range of people as members from all across the city. So, please jump on board, become a member, head to the website, and you can join us on this mission to change the media in the city and beyond. Let me just stay on the History Commission. How were you chosen, Sean, and what were the criteria? Well, when the statue came down, and, you know, I know Marvin. I've known Marvin for a long time. Yeah. And, yeah, I saw what was happening, and I heard the stories that he's going to set up this conversation 
you know, I just put my name out there. I just said, I want to get involved in the conversation. I feel like I'd have something to contribute. So I wasn't chosen as such. I kind no. of elbowed my way into the okay. room. <laughs> I see. Right. <laughs> you know okay. what I mean? yeah. Yeah. For those that don't know, this is the History Commission that's been set up off the back of the fall of Colston. And it's about how we reflect and look back upon and sort of update the the history of Bristol in all its kind of context and whereas you know there's an argument to say that lots of stuff in the city has been sort of brushed under the carpet a bit so this kind of history commission is part of this legacy sean is on it as are a number of other mainly academics aren't they on the whole is that right yeah 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 yeah, predominantly academics academics. and there has been some criticism to say that it's it's a bit selective is that come on your radar a bit yeah, no, I see that um, on Twitter. So, yeah, I definitely see those accusations. And as I wrote back to someone last week to say that actually within the History Commission, a lot of us are also frustrated about yeah. the lack of visibility and the slowness. You know, loads of, you know, we're all there voluntary and yeah. doing our day job and trying to do things in, in our spare time and evenings and stuff. So, I definitely would say it's easy. I mean, one of my big jobs with the History Commission so far has been working with the staff at the museum service and M-Shed and looking at how the Colston statue is going to be displayed. And as you can imagine, that's just hugely complex in terms of tone, language, getting it right, you know, consultation, all that kind of stuff. So, you know, I'm one of the representatives for the History Commission working on that. So So you have met a few, quite a fair few times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we've had formal meetings, yeah, all over Zoom. And they've been minuted. You know the, the the minutes are there, and I know there's been a freedom of information request. Oh, is that that has been sent? Well, okay. we got consulted <laughs> to say there's a history commission freedom of information thing, and we were like, yeah. well, yeah, you know, we're not going to. Yeah, I mean, there's a. I think one of the one of the key, uh, I guess, criticisms has been the fact that Countering Colston or the Bristol Radical History Group aren't on there. I know you can't speak on behalf of the whole of the kind of Greek. Were you surprised that they aren't on there? Uh, yes. And it's, yeah, it's an interesting nuance because, um, so I keep using the word nuance. I don't usually use it so often in one <laughs> anyway, conversation. I don't even know what it means. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, I, I don't have, a, I don't have an issue about anyone being on there. If people yeah. have something to contribute, I, yeah, I, absolutely. And there's other people, you know, that I know that have been doing work around this, Ros Martin and different people, that yeah. absolutely, completely would be great to have them on. Do you know why they're not then? Do we know why I they're mean, not? I mean, it's not really... I, I mean, I don't know. I yeah. don't know. I couldn't say that... that no, there's not a willful thing keeping anyone off it, if that makes sense. Do you yeah. know what I mean? I just know these people come together. I don't fully know, you know, so maybe I'm starting to sound slightly evasive there. But those <laughs> conversations haven't really been had to say, well, they yeah. should be, they shouldn't be, they should be. But there has been a conversation to say, yeah, there is a lot of academics and actually where are the Bristol-born people? Yeah, you know, I was going to say that. How many, yeah, there isn't many. How many, do we, how many Bristolians are on it? Estella was there. I, I don't. I, to be honest, I don't know everyone. That's oh, Kang Yu was an honorary Bristolian. Being yeah, 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 I've been there long enough. I don't know, but it's definitely yeah, definitely yeah. in the minority. I, can't, I guess I don't I, don't, I don't. I don't think there's enough black people on there. Black no. women. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Oliver Atelli was originally on there, but yeah. she was also on the race equality and also the other legacy steering groups. So she felt she had to stand down and sure. concentrate on those other ones, and that's you know that's fine. Yeah. I mean, the, the thing about the History Commission is, I think there's actually a misconception 
about what his remit is. And maybe, they, again, that's our fault for not being as transparent. That might be the messaging, yeah. Because it's, it's gone yeah. a bit Dan Brown, hasn't it? Everyone thinks it's like, you know, yeah, no, a exactly. secret kind of, yeah. Exactly. Because the thing about the History Commission that is using the Colston statue moment as a starting point to have yeah. a wider conversation about yeah. a full range of histories around Bristol, not all connected with the slave trade at all. Sure. Whereas the legacy group, uh, which is chaired by Councillor Asher Cray, that yeah. is directly looking at the transatlantic slave trade. And that's got people like Jendai Serwa, yeah. um, you know, Cleo Lake on there. But I think because when the History Commission got set up, I think there was this misconception that, that this is the task force that is now going to be looking at slave trade legacy in Bristol, and it isn't. But I do understand where that perception has come from in terms of the timing was, of how it was set up and all that kind of thing, you know. Yeah. But, you know, for me... It's early days. It might feel slow to people outside. And I know we're coming up to the first anniversary. But for me, I'd rather do things slow and get it right than rush it and get it wrong and make huge, humongous mistakes. Do you know what I mean? I think you're kind of seen as like... I don't know, our man on the history commission a little bit. Oh, no, honestly, I was when I saw the list, I was like, I don't know that person, don't know that person. Oh, I know them, they're quite famous. I'm like, oh, good, Sean's on it. Do you know what I mean? Honestly, it's a bit, yeah, it felt, felt a bit like that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, I just have to be transparent. I'm, I haven't been told mm. I can say this, can't say that. Do you know what I mean? I just have to be myself. Sure. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. now, now it is a way to go. It is in development. By no means do we know. What do you hope to achieve? What, uh, you know, obviously you've been on there personally. Yeah. Um, what do you kind of hope the group achieves? Brilliant question. Um, uh, what I would like it to do, and this comes back to my community engagement kind of yeah. days, really. I would like the History Commission to be able to set up a, I don't know, whatever it is, like a, a, a platform, uh, an atmosphere. I call it an atmosphere in Bristol where people know that they've got somewhere to go if they've got a particular story, if they've got a particular opinion, if they've, you know, if they've got a different outlook on something. Mm. For me, history is living in the moment. It's not just in the past. Yeah. If an interesting thing happened yesterday that actually quite, quite monumental, I'm interested in that thing getting documented yeah. and then that thing then being re-looked at next year, if that makes sense. So I want people to know that actually... We are interested in what happens in the city. We are interested in what parts of the history you connect with, whether it's to do with race, class, gender, disability, you know, all kinds of things. And for the History Commission to set up a space, physical, online, you know, through the educational establishments, it might be through initiatives with all the schools in the city, to say, you know what, Bristol is a city that wants to learn from its past in order to move forward. One of the keys, I guess, is reaching out to all parts of the city as as well. And absolutely, as you say, absolutely. all groups. And, and it's quite a sensitive issue. You know, what we might agree on is not necessarily the same as what somebody absolutely. else does. You know, but I, 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 there are, you know, there are also red lines in the sand a bit with some of this stuff where it's like, mm. well, hang on a minute. Uh, what I find really, really interesting is that when you start to look for positions of solidarity or positions of of shared knowledge or positions of shared experience oh, i don't know good example we've spoken a lot yeah. about racism and institutional racism in the media which i would say uh, i'm in agreement with you 100 yeah. percent. if i was then in that debate which i do do this sometimes and it, yeah. I, it's quite interesting how people react to that 
I'd also say, you know, 80% of media editors went to private school yeah, and 11% yeah. of journalists are from C2D working class backgrounds, for example. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. there is a class issue, in, uh, you know, in, in the media as well. But what tends to happen is that this is where people get these things wrong. Often when somebody jumps into a debate like that, yeah, it's yeah, often yeah. whataboutery and they use yeah, it, yeah, they, yeah, they yeah, use it yeah, to yeah, negate yeah, the yeah, issue yeah. of race. Yeah, or yeah, sometimes yeah. the other side of that is that, well-meaning sort of liberal middle-class people in the media don't want you to talk about this yeah, because it yeah. threatens their own actual position. <laughs> definitely, definitely. Uh, that you know, I don't know. This is true. This is a rumor on the Twitter sphere. Yeah. Is that the merchant ventures are funding part of the? No, 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 no. That's no, not, that's no, not they're true. Not, they're no. not. And I was like, I'm Explain glad you asked. I'm glad you asked me that directly because yeah. yeah. when I when I said that, yeah, we've been contacted about freedom of information. Yeah, in that particular minutes of that meeting, mm-hmm. it does say the merchant ventures have offered us, I can't even remember how much it was, yeah. have offered us funding for the History Commission. But what that minutes didn't do was log the, um, it just put it out there as a, as, as yeah, this was, that it's been mentioned. A question. But it, yeah, yeah, it, but, yeah, but we didn't actually really discuss it in that meeting. Yeah. But the answer was emphatically no, we don't yeah. want that many, thank you very much. So it only actually is like hearing a one-way part of the phone call. You didn't hear the response. Why would it, so be, bad? Why would it got... be bad if they did, though? Well, it's just an agenda-laden bit of money. I don't, I'd just rather not have that money with all that tainted, yeah. you know, whether it's indirect. They can say no strings attached money. Yeah. I know it's come from the Society of Merchant Ventures who have a stake in this conversation. And just from, just from you asking me the question... Yeah. Is, is is that's why we can't take that money. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. But for me, Society of the Emergent Ventures funding the History Commission is it's just far too loaded. Too loaded. And I wouldn't really be comfortable with that. Yeah. What happens in Bristol is that it feels like we're having the same conversation over and over and over again. Did you know that you yeah. know, Poe's Bridge is named after the slave African. Did you know that Poe's Bridge is named after the slave? Do you know what I mean? It's like, is that okay. because there's a load of new people? I know. It feels, I, I feel the same. I feel that is that because there's a load of new people that have moved to Bristol that suddenly there's this sort of eureka moment about what the city is. But if you've been in and around community circles or you've worked in community development or you've worked in, you know, this isn't really, this isn't a new conversation. So people yeah, like well, Cleo and Asher have the kind of got this over the line. You know, been talking about that for yeah, since, yeah, since yeah. knee high. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I, yeah, I can absolutely can't take it for granted that everyone is at the same starting point. Mm. Obviously, education needs to happen. And that's why I feel a space like an educational institute, a museum, whatever it might be, would help, would help that conversation move paces forward rather than feel like it's always starting at square one all the time. Yeah. So for me, I, I am interested in a Bristol context of education, museum space, you know, an educational institute where people can come and learn. Mate, that sounds superb. Thank you, Sean. No, thank you very much. I enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, I have as well. Really good. And um, good luck with it all. And I'm sure our paths will cross. Uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. On the Twitter sphere. Thanks, Danny, mate. All right, take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. So I'm just reflecting on that chat with Sean Sabers. Yeah, really good. Yeah, I've always liked him. And I think he's a really thoughtful, interesting bloke. In the context of what we spoke about, there's there's nobody better to talk about 
the role of the media, you know, the changing sense of of the of institutional racism and where that's developed and where that's not. I think the whole Black Lives Matter thing is kind of given a real shake up and kick up the arse for these organisations and institutions. In the context of the Meghan Markle stuff, that was interesting and how that's kind of played out. Um, you know, I think Sean's obviously got a very clear position on that. But it was good to talk to Sean because he's been in the mainstream media as an organisation of the black person with very few around him in ITV. So he, he's kind of experienced the full gamut. Then he's gone into academia and he very much now is sort of seen as a as an authority in the city. The Bristol History Commission, there's been some controversy about that, about who has been selected, what is the criteria for selection. With him, he was only speaking for himself, obviously not on behalf of the History Commission. We need to be clear about that. Said that it was something that he expressed an interest in being involved in. Kind of accepted that maybe could be a bit more transparent and maybe the messaging could be a bit clearer. However, the concept of a history commission, I think nobody can disagree it's a good thing for the city, Bristol leading the way again, as it does on, on, on a number of things. So that was good to talk to him. And yeah, just a good chat. He's, he's top bloke. He's the sort of bloke you want to spend a bit of time with. I uh, hope you enjoyed it. Um, this is the last one until we do politics. Mayoral specials are coming up. <sighs> gonna get tasty thanks for listening to Bristol Unpacked I'm Neil Maggs and a big thanks to Rosa Eaton our audio producer Adam Cantwell Corn, our executive producer and Blue Dot for our music make sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes and if you want to support what we're doing join the Bristol Cable along with 2,000 others to create a new kind of media for the city